All right, what's up, guys? Uh, as Daniel said, my name is Trevor Gossett, and I'm one of the guys on staff here uh, with H2O. Am I sounding good coming over the speakers to you guys? Sound good? Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm ex super excited to be here, super excited for what the Lord has planned for us uh, from the passage we're going to be looking at, from uh, some of the things that, uh, um, yeah, that I'm going to be sharing with you. But before I even speak one word of my sermon, I just want to go to the Lord in prayer um, and just really just invite his spirit into this space, you know, because he is certainly here, but I believe he's very honored when we, when we really acknowledge him, when we really receive him. Um, so I just want to go to the Lord in prayer right now. So if you please uh, bow your heads with me. Father God, sovereign Lord, Creator God, Lord God Almighty, God, you are here. God, I just, I just pray just a washing of your spirit over us here tonight, a washing of our hearts, this nearness with you, sensitivity to you and your Holy Spirit, Father God. God, we love you so much. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, here tonight, God, I beg you, God, that you would be speaking through me. God, any heart change, any breakthrough, anything that happens, God, all the glory, all the credit, all the praise goes to you. The highest praise is to you, Father God. God, I pray that you would be pleased with our time together tonight. And God, I pray that you would move in power. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the many things that I find to just be so awesome and so moving about how God has designed us, how God has created us, uh, is memory. The fact that we have a memory, that even after some sort of experience has happened, you know, maybe days, weeks, months, years down the road, we can still actually like re-immerse ourselves back into whatever those experiences were. Just this weekend, we had a men's retreat out in uh, southern Indiana, um, and I can still picture us running around with the, the glow-in-the-dark capture the flag, you know, the axe throwing, the, the campfire talks, you know, still just thinking of those things, re-immersing myself there. And I want you all to, to really think about something in your life. Maybe it was something more recent, maybe it was something from childhood, just some kind of significant event, some sort of positive experience that you had that just always kind of really stuck with you. It's always kind of like stands out in your memory of like kind of some of the funnest moments of your life. Well, for me, uh, one of these moments was just a few years ago here when I was at, a student at UC. A few years ago, John Stickway and I uh, started a flag football team. Uh, and if you, know, if you know anything about this story, we started this team uh, and we lost every single game of the regular season. There we are up there. Um, we, we got the team together to, to really like reach these guys we were playing with, all that kind of stuff, and just, you know, play some football on the side. So again, get the team together. We lose every single game of the regular season. And going into the playoffs, every team makes the playoffs. We're like second from dead last. And it's like, well, all right, here we go. But you know what? We won every single game all the way to the championship. Yeah. 
uh, in this championship. Uh, this is taken right after the championship, and you can see that we're in the bubble on campus. Right? It's back and forth, back and forth. It's such a hard-fought game. And on that last play of the game, you know, we're brought to the, this, this point where um, they were down near their end zone, and this last play of the game, if they score, they win the championship. We stop them, we win the championship. It's almost like, like a movie trailer or something. Um, but this is where we found ourselves. The ball snap, and this, this guy comes cutting across the middle, and I, like, dive onto him. I probably, I probably commit pass interference or something. I don't know. Um, but, but the ball falls to the ground, incomplete, and right there, us, like the second-class seed, we win the flag football championship right there as a fully defeated team in the regular season. Um, and I, I just knock it down, and you can see up here there's some uh, H2O people. Uh, I, I just remember getting up, and I'm just sprinting downfield, and everyone on the sidelines is going crazy. And that is, like, that's one of the pinnacles of my athletic career. <laughs> right? Uh, and this picture right here, this is taken right after we won the championship, just beholding us in our glory uh, at that time. The reason I bring that up, uh, the events from the Gospel of Mark that we're going to be reading tonight um, really, really stuck with the Apostle Peter. Um, we see, so the Apostle Peter was a witness to these events that we're going to be talking about. And over 30 years later, he would go on to write about it in what we now know as the biblical book of Second Peter. Um, and uh, I don't know, that really like, sparked some curiosity. This, this was something that was just so moving for Peter, you know, so influential for him. Uh, so we're going to jump in. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. It's going to be verses 2 through 8. You can either open your Bibles or you can follow along with me up on the screen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. It says this, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Okay, so from reading this, I think it's quite an understatement to say that James, Peter, and John are having a pretty wild evening, right? And remember that this isn't just some story. This isn't some made-up metaphor. This is actually a, a historical account of something that actually happened. And just imagine if you were one of these guys who was there, right? You're following Jesus up this mountain. You guys are probably kind of having some sort of dialogue, some, some sort of uh, conversation. You get to the top. You're pretty tired because you just climbed the mountain. You're just kind of sitting there. And then, bam, these beams of light start shooting off of Jesus, right? And you're like, oh. What's going on, right? Uh, and the intensity, t intensity of things goes from zero to 100 real quick. It would have been so wild to be there. And from our, from our perspective, almost 2,000 years later as we read this, we can see there's all sorts of moving parts here, all, all sorts of things going on. And it honestly stirs up a number of questions, right? What does it even mean that Jesus was transfigured? You know, we don't say that. Where did, where did Moses and Elijah come from? You know, why, why were they even there? 
what's up with the cloud and the voice that speaks out of the cloud. Just what is going on here? This, this just seems so wild. And because there's so much going on here, we're going to go through this passage again, kind of verse by verse, dissecting it as we go, really digging into it as we go. So I believe God has some very important and very powerful lessons um, that he wants to teach us here tonight. So as we go through, we're going to look at what's going on, why certain things are happening, and what God wants to teach us. So looking again at our first verse, Mark 9, verse 2, we read, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they're all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. My first question comes up within the first three words. After six days. You know, I'm reading this, and I think to myself, hold up. For some reason, this gospel writer, Mark, felt inclined to specifically mention that what is happening here occurred six days after something else. So what is this something else? What happened six days prior to this? To answer this question, we need to go back into Mark chapter 8. And for the sake of time, because Zach uh, preached a really good sermon on it last week, I'm just going to kind of give you a brief summary of what was going on. So about a week ago, about six days ago, um, Jesus directly asked his disciples a very loaded question. The question that he asked them was, who do you say I am? When he was asking them, he said, who do you think I am? Am I legit? Am I the Messiah? Am I your dude? Who do you say that I am? And this is actually a huge theme all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Of who is this Jesus guy? Who is this guy that keeps multiplying the loaves? Who is this guy that keeps walking on the water? Um, and when Jesus asked this, Peter, bold Peter, speaks up right away. says, Jesus, you're the Christ. It's like, yeah, Peter, heck yeah, man. Like, nailed it on the head. Um, you know, up to this point, Jesus has been sharing a bunch of wisdom. You know, he's been doing all these miraculous powers, and Peter's been witnessing just about all of it. So he's like, yeah, dude, you're the, like, I've never seen this before. I don't think any human could do this. I think you're God. I think you're the Messiah. Um, and he was right. But Mark, Mark 8 goes on to say right after this uh, that Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and rise from the dead three days later. Okay, so that's kind of like a, a quick summary. So what's going on six days ago? Peter just made his first declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, and in response to that, Jesus says, I'm going to die. Okay, that kind of is what we're, what we're working with. You know, and this context is actually very important, so remember that we're about a, about a week removed from that stuff happening. Um, now, continuing in Mark 9, 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. So Jesus was the king of intentionality, right? Both, both literally and figuratively. And I believe that there was a specific reason why Jesus led these guys up a high mountain where they would be all alone, just the four of them, nobody else. And this stirs up a question for me of why. Jesus, why did you want to be alone with these guys? And I was asking this question, the spirit in me was really pointing to a parallel in my own life with my wife Susie. So every Wednesday evening on a weekly basis is a set aside and a guarded date night for Susie and I. You know, it's this time just to really just focus on each other, just to pay attention to each other, not allow anyone else into that space, right? And a lot of times we're very intentional about going to a park, going to a movie theater, coffee shop, restaurant, something like that, or even just staying at our house so that our attention, our focus, 
Our time won't be given to anyone else except each other. And I believe that this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, Peter, James, John, I don't want your attention to be on anything else in this moment except me. And where can, where's pretty much the only place I can go? Up atop this super high mountain. Because there was always this huge influx, this huge crowd of people around Jesus wherever he went. If we, if we go back just a few chapters to Mark chapter 6, um, this, is, this is Mark 6, 30 through 34. It says this. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And, and right before this, Jesus had sent his disciples out to teach and to like, have the authority to cast out demons and all that kind of stuff. So they've come back to him. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So here in Mark 6, we actually see Jesus making this attempt to get away from people. So you guys have been so busy. You guys have just been so run down. Let's get, let's get out of here. And somehow all these crowds see it and like they run all the way around the lake. And by the time, that, by the time Jesus and his disciples land, they're like, Jesus, how did you get here? <laughs> right? Um, and they don't actually get any kind of time away. So here in Mark 9, I think Jesus is saying, okay, for real this time, I'm going to climb a mountain so you people won't get there. Yeah, try and follow me. Um, and he succeeds. It's just the four of them. And as we continue going through our passage, we'll see that Jesus really was being intentional. He really wanted to get these guys away from all the distractions, away from all the burdens, all the pressures, and that kind of stuff, so that their full attention would be on him for some sort of very special moment. So Mark 9, verses 2 and 3. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up a high mountain where they're all alone. We have that part. Here comes, here comes the big thing. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So what originally seemed like a normal small group hike up this mountain has just gotten really intense, right? Um, and it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, what does this word transfigured mean? We don't say that. Hey, were you transfigured yesterday? No, we don't say, we don't say this word. Um, so when we look at this word transfigured, that Jesus was transfigured before them, the, the original Greek word that is used here is metamorpho. And what does that sound like for us, right? Metamorphosis. And this Greek word is actually where we get our, our common English word from, uh, for metamorphosis, is from this Greek word. Um, so another way to look at this, that, that Jesus was metamorphing, that he was changing form, that he was transforming in some way. And you guys know that there's somewhat of this new social media trend uh, called a, a glow-up, right? You know, where you have this big change, you know, going through, through puberty, all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's not pu puberty, maybe it's just maturity in some other sense. Maybe it's you just getting wiser and all that kind of stuff. And here in this moment, this is like the most epic glow-up you've ever seen, right? Um, and Mark 9 tells us that Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And Mark 9 actually isn't the only place we get a description of what Jesus looked, at, looked at, like at this time. Um, in Matthew 17, too, we read this. 
says, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. I, w- I want you guys to really like, let, these, let these descriptions sink in. Like this literally says, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. You know, when you're, you're driving, driving down the road in a car with those like, super bright LED headlights is coming this way, right? And your people and that headlight meet like perfectly. And it's like this full blast of nothingness except white light, right? So picture that, except not just the headlight, but an entire person is just like, bam, right? And that's kind of what we see here in Matthew 17. And then in Luke 9, it says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. It's very similar to what we just read. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. This is actually my favorite description because that's the one I can really actually see the most, like as bright as a flash of lightning right here um, standing before them. But why is this happening? Is Jesus just doing like the most ultimate flex of all time just because he can? I don't think so. I think there's a reason behind this. The first reason, here during the transfiguration, Jesus is intentionally pulling back the curtain of his fleshly body. And in this moment, he is fully revealing his true identity as the sovereign Lord of glory. See, Jesus didn't just get struck by lightning. He didn't just invent electricity. He doesn't have the world's most powerful flashlight. This is Jesus' personal glory, his personal majesty, his personal splendor on display in this moment. And again, these descriptions that we have, his face shining like the sun, his clothes becoming as bright as a flash of lightning, just so intense. And this is the glory. This is the glory of your Lord and your Savior. And what do I mean when I say that when Jesus came up here, that he was pulling back the curtain of his humble human body? What What does that even mean? So in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we read this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Then if we jump down to John 1, 14, the same chapter, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So here, it's really given a lot, a lot of background, right? Jesus is with the Father. Jesus didn't just start in Bethlehem. Okay? Jesus was not even created. Jesus has always been. Since, since day, day one, Jesus was around. He is the word who was with God and who was God at the beginning. And we see that Jesus has stepped down. Jesus has stepped across this chasm out of heaven, here to earth, taking on flesh, becoming like us. And we know this is talking about Jesus who stepped down out of his, out of his uh, kingdom of heaven here to earth on a rescue mission to save people from their sins, to save us from eternal punishment and hell, to rescue us from this present evil age. And that's kind of all, all the description we get there, the fact that Jesus came, the fact that Jesus just took on flesh and came. Um, but uh, I want to read to you two other passages, one from Philippians 2 and the other from Isaiah chapter 53 that actually give us some more detail about Jesus taking on flesh, about Jesus becoming a human. So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, 
um, tell us that Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I know this is a passage that many of you have probably read before, but I really want you to slow down and just think about what this passage is saying. That Jesus, even though he was God, humbled himself to the point of just being a servant, a humble human servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Isaiah 53, it's going to be verses 2 through 6 in Isaiah 53. Speaking of Jesus, it says this. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In light of this, do you remember those descriptions we had of Jesus during his transfiguration? That his glory was shining so bright, his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, his face shone like the sun in all of its brilliance. And how much does Jesus love you? So much so that he would step, out of, step off of his throne, step out of heaven, and take on a form that says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Jesus wasn't even attractive. That's how lowly he was. Like, Jesus didn't just become a human. He became, like, the most humble human that ever lived. Jesus made himself nothing while he was the king of everything. He was despised and rejected by mankind, and he designed and he created mankind. All the while, he was the Lord of glory. And this is, this is something I really want to share with you. Even though Jesus took on this form on the inside, what he looked like during the transfiguration, that was his identity the entire time on the inside. That is who Jesus was. That is who Jesus is. And I want to give you just a, a very simple demonstration to kind of help you understand this, because this is so incredibly important. So for this, right, we have this LED flashlight. All of you can see that, right? This shining forth, shining, shining bright. Um, and when I put this in here, you can't see that light at all. There's nothing shining forth here. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what's going on right here. Right, right now, this flashlight is on, but you have no idea this is on, right? You can't see that. And this is John 1.14. The Word 
the word. This is who the word is, shining bright, shining in his glory, sitting in these heavenly courts. And the Bible says that thousands of angels and all of the spirits made perfect are roaring his praises. Jesus, Jesus. And he comes to this point where no one can see his glory anymore. People hid their faces from him because they didn't even want to look at him. Why did Jesus do this? Because he loves you that much. You know, when you say, oh yeah, okay, Jesus loves me, do you understand the depth of Jesus Christ's love? That he went from this to this for you. Completely concealing his glory. Saying, you know, I am, I am God, but I'm not going to use that to my own advantage at all. I'm going to come, and I'm going to sweat, I'm going to be hungry, I'm going to be thirsty, I'm going to be in pain. I'm going to be completely humiliated in front of you. Because he loves you so much, and because he wants you. The same Jesus, whose face shone like the sun with all of its brilliance. The same Jesus, who received all those praises in heaven. It's the same Jesus who made himself nothing on your behalf. And more than that, took on the wrath of your sins. He lived a perfectly sinless life, did nothing wrong, said even though you are totally guilty and I'm totally innocent, I am coming in and I'm taking your place. We were doomed. Do you realize we were doomed? There was nothing we could do. We deserved to go to hell. And you know what? If God sent every single one of us to hell, he would still be good. That's what we were up against. God didn't need to. God shouldn't have, but he did. That is the gospel. It's not, oh yeah, Jesus loves me. It's like, oh my gosh, Jesus loves me? What? The Bible tells us that every time we sin, it's like we're cheating, we're we're committing adultery against God, that we were cheating. Those of you who have been in relationships or are in a relationship, just think right now, if your significant other was cheating on you, how much pain you would feel. Do you realize that's what you do to God every single time that you sin? Susie's wonderful, and I know she would never do this. If she did that once, I would have a hard time with that. And we sin every single day, multiple times a day. And what is Jesus' response? Make me someone who's not even attractive. Make me someone who's going to be familiar with pain for them so I can take their place. That is the love of Jesus for you. That Jesus dethroned himself intentionally for you. Understand what Jesus did for you. And why? Again, why is this happening? Why did Jesus pull Peter, James, and John up here so badly? Why is this so significant? As I've already been saying, Jesus wants you to know how much he loves you and how much he wants you. That he would do anything for you. Jesus allowed us just to see a glimpse of his true identity as the Lord of glory so we can just partially see how much he gave up. And the reason this is so important, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, even 
even though he was the Lord of glory, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And that's why I'm sitting in this so long. For Christ's love compels us. Does the love of Christ compel you? Or are you just like, oh, that's cool. Does it compel you? Do you know how much the Lord of glory loves you and sees you and values you? Because if you do, you don't care what anyone else says. You don't care what the world says. You don't care about having some sort of treasure over here. The Lord of glory loves you, wants you, desires you, and that's all you need. You can go and you can give everything away. In your most difficult moment, you can say, you know what? I am unshakable. You can be unshakable people. Realize what Jesus Christ did for you. Things are the way that they are, but it is incredible that they are. And even one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this, just a few years ago, I was driving in my car and I was listening to Ephesians, where where Paul gets to the point where he says, I pray somehow you'll be able to, to grasp how wide and deep and long is the love of Christ. And I heard that and it's like, Jesus' love makes a lot of sense to me. Like, Jesus loves me? Of course he does. Who wouldn't? Right? But I started praying a prayer that day. I said, God, I feel like I understand your love, and I don't think I should. I want you to, I want you to wreck me. And he did. And you know what? Where I was, I was in a sense of entitlement. I was believing that God existed for me, not that I existed for God. Yes, God is for us, but it's about him. It's all about him. Through the transfiguration, Jesus says, I love you this much. Number two, reason why. Jesus Christ is showing that God alone, that God alone is worthy. God alone deserves our worship. Notice in our passage in Mark 9, it says that Jesus' clothes became uh, whiter than anyone could bleach them. Right? This degree of whiteness, this degree of purity that we can't get to. Right? Because his glory is so immense. You know, there's an old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. One of the lines I love at that says, When Jesus comes back, it's, it's singing about when Jesus comes back. He says, The things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And growing up, this is confusing to me. It's like, what, everything else is going to whack out or or what? But I realized everything is going to stay the same. But when you you have a light and then you bring a greater light into that, you're like, wow, look how dim that light actually is and how bright this one is. And that is exactly what Jesus is coming to do. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Because his glory shines whiter, shines brighter, shines more beautiful than anything else ever could. In 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says this. It says, do not love, uh, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Do not love the things of this world, because you are, you are committing adultery if you do that. Now, yes, love each other. That's not what this is talking about. 
This is like chasing after money, making money your God, making fame your God, making sex your God, all these things. There's nothing inherently bad about those things. But when they come to the position of God, we have a problem because there is one who is worthy of worship. There is one who is worthy of all things. If we gave him all things, it would still be not enough. And I pray that you'd be able to see this. Pray that you'd be able to understand how worthy, how beautiful, how good Jesus Christ is. Uh, Number three, through his glorious transfiguration, Jesus Christ was giving Peter, James, and John the assurance do you, remember, do you remember what I said happened six days ago? Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the dude. You're the guy. And Jesus says, you're right. I'm about to die. I'm about to suffer and be killed at the hands of men. And, he, and here in the glorious transfiguration, Jesus was giving them the assurance that even if Jesus was to go and he was to be rejected, he was to suffer. He would, be, he would be crucified and killed at the hands of the Romans that he was still in control the entire time. See, when Jesus broke the news to his disciples that he was going to suffer and die at the hands of the people, his disciples started freaking out. Peter went so far as to rebuke Jesus, and that didn't go very well. You're going to lose if you try to rebuke God. Um, Jesus rebukes Peter back for, trying, for Peter trying to tell him what to do, trying to tell him what the truth should be. The, deci- the disciples were freaking out so much when Jesus said this because many first century Jews actually had a skewed view of who they expected the coming Messiah to, to be and what they expected the coming Messiah to accomplish. And all of Jesus' disciples were first century Jews. So when Jesus boldly declared that Jesus was the Messiah, he had another Messiah in mind. He had, a, he had another view of the Messiah in mind, I should say. Because Jesus was there to accomplish something that Jesus didn't expect him to accomplish. Jesus had another plan, or Peter had another plan in mind. And for Peter, James, John, and the rest of Jesus' disciples, they believed that there would be only one coming of the Messiah. That the, the Messiah would show up the Messiah Messiah would go conquer the Romans because at this time the Romans were oppressing the Jews. And that the Messiah would reestablish the reign of God on earth right then and there for all of eternity. And it would be a happy ever after kind of ending. So when Jesus sits down his disciples, he says, okay, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm about to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be suffered. I'm going to be killed by the Romans. They're like, what? What? No. You're supposed to kill the Romans, not have the Romans kill you. Like, what are you talking about? And they are just freaking out at this point. But when Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus' transfiguration, when they saw that under the curtain of a weak, humble, fleshly body, that the man who was standing in front of them was Jesus Christ. The man who was standing in front of them was the Creator that the man who was standing in front of them was the Alpha and the Omega, that this gave them the assurance that even if Jesus was to suffer and die, he was in control the entire time, and no mortal man was taking Jesus' life from him. In John 10, Jesus is speaking. This is John 10, verses 17 through 18. 
He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. Brothers and sisters, no mortal man can take Jesus' life. When he was on trial, they were, they were mocking him. And he said, you would have no authority if I didn't give it to you. And this is who Jesus is. Through the transfiguration, they were given the assurance that even if Jesus would suffer and die, he knew what he was doing. He was still victorious, and he was in control the entire time. I believe that this experience, this lesson, was one of the biggest things that strengthened the faith of the Apostle Peter. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned um, that this event was something that really stuck with Peter. In A.D. 65, he would go on to write the book of 2 Peter, okay? And, uh, which is about 30 years after this happened, a little over 30 years. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, we read this. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So this sounds pretty familiar, right? Um, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So here, Peter is expressing how much personal confidence he has in Jesus, how much personal confidence he has in the gospel. And this gospel he's been preaching and contending for his entire life. And we see that he makes mention of the transfiguration here, right? He says, um, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying what he did. We heard our voice when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we can see this is something that I think Peter would continue to go back to. Hey, remember who Jesus is. Remember who Jesus is. Remember who your Lord is. Remember who your commander is. He's the Lord of glory. After seeing Jesus' full display of glory, Peter was convinced that Jesus could do literally anything, and he was right. Peter also learned another valuable lesson uh, during Jesus' transfiguration that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, So let's jump back to Mark chapter 9, and and we'll look into this additional valuable lesson for him. It's Mark chapter 9, verses 4 through 8. Mark 9, 4 through 8. It says, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So as if this experience wasn't wild enough already for Peter, James, and John, it keeps going. It keeps getting more wild. So Peter, James, and John, they're already there, very wide-eyed, bewildered, because Jesus is this ball of glory now. And then... What do you know? Moses and Elijah walk up. And brothers and sisters, Moses had been died for almost, Moses had been dead for almost 1,500 years at this point. And Elijah uh, had passed from this life 
almost a thousand years before this as well. So the fact that Moses and Elijah are walking up on the scene is like, I haven't seen you guys before, ever, because you were 10 generations before me. So I, I read this personally. I'm like, what is going on? Jesus is ball of glory. Moses and Elijah show up. Like, what, what is going on? And as I did some digging, I actually found that the reasons behind why Moses, Moses and Elijah show up and start talking with Jesus are pretty cool. So it's helpful for you to know that these guys, Moses, Moses and Elijah, they're actually standing there as representatives of the Old Testament. So one way scholars view the entirety of the Old Testament is in two sections, two halves. One, one half being the law of God, uh, like the law of Moses that um, God gave the Israelites in Exodus. The other half being the prophets. And for Jews, the name Moses was just equated with Old Testament law. So you know, like when someone needs to blow their nose, what do we say? Say, hey, do you need Kleenex? It's facial tissue is the actual name of that. Kleenex is just a brand, right? But almost everyone I know just says Kleenex. And it, now it's like the same thing with this. They'd be like, hey, Moses. They'd be like, oh, law, got it, you know? Um, so, the, so Moses is there representing the law. And the prophet Elijah, he was a really uh, profound prophet in the Old Testament. And he was there representing all the Old Testament prophets. Uh, and there's a couple things we learn from their presence uh, here. First, the presence of Moses and Elijah here with Jesus during the transfiguration gave all of Jesus' disciples, not just Peter, James, and John, but even us today as well, evidence of life extending beyond this life. Remember, these guys had died almost at least a thousand years before this. They had passed on at least a thousand years before this. Yet, here they are. They're standing there. It gives us evidence that there is life beyond this life in heaven. And this actually gave the disciples a great boost of confidence as well, because Jesus has been saying up to this point, hey, I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. They're like, I don't really know what this means. Um, and this helps them see it's literal. He's actually going to rise from the dead. The presence of Moses and Elijah also, also testified to the truth that the entire Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, that it's all about Jesus. But the Apostle Peter didn't actually totally understand this while the transfiguration was happening. So when Peter sees Moses and Elijah there with Jesus, he, sp he speaks up with this great idea that he thinks he has. He says, Jesus, you're here, Moses is here, Elijah's here. I'm just going to put up three shelters, and you guys can just chill there, and we'll stay here forever. Um, but the problem with him saying that, and how I interpret this, is that when Peter was suggesting that a shelter be put up for Jesus alongside Moses and Elijah, that he was saying, Jesus, you are no more important than the law or the prophets. You're just another one. And that's a big problem. And our passage says that once Peter said this, that almost choreographically, from God's perspective, um, that they're immediately enveloped, they're immediately surrounded by a cloud, and they couldn't see anything. And God the Father speaks from the cloud what I believe to be in response to what Peter had just said to correct him. And God says, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And by responding in this way, God the Father is telling these disciples, he says, Jesus Christ and the new message that Jesus is preaching, the thing that Jesus is accomplishing is on a whole other level than anything else, anyone else. He's making a new way and a new way 
of glory. Greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than the law, greater than the prophets, greater than any other messenger is Jesus Christ. It's when God says, this is my son. He's not saying, hey, this is another messenger. This is my son. This is my heir. This is me. God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And God the Father was acknowledging, yes, the law and the prophets are good, and that they were pointing to Jesus, but now the law and the prophets must give way to the new and living way that Jesus is establishing by his substitutionary death and his resurrection. And I think that uh, when Moses and Elijah, they start coming and they're talking to Jesus, uh, Luke 9, I believe it is, tells us that um, they were talking about Jesus' death. And what I, what I believe to be really cool about this is they weren't talking to Jesus about something. Jesus was talking to them. Because they were doing all these writings and that kind of stuff, but Moses and Elijah, they didn't know exactly, hey, I'm going to give my son, his name's going to be Jesus, he's going to die for people's sins, this is how it's going to work. That wasn't how it was given to them. They were just faithful to what they had been given. Right? They didn't know some of the details. So when Moses and Elijah show up, Jesus is like, guys, guess what? This is what I'm going to do. And also, in the Old Testament, uh, Moses and Elijah were uh, two of the only people in the Old Testament who actually saw a part of God. Um, for Moses, he's on top of the mountain. And it says he got to see the train of God's robe. He couldn't see his face or else he would die. But here in this moment, almost 2,000 years later, Moses is looking directly in the face of Jesus. And I believe this is so powerful for the new and living way that Jesus is establishing. He's saying, I am opening a way where you can all see me face to face someday. And how perfectly fitting and even confirming it is that once the cloud, cloud clears, the disciples don't see anyone except Jesus standing there. And God is saying, Jesus is the primary focus. Listen to him. And brothers and sisters, please still read the Old Testament. I'm not, I'm not bashing on the Old Testament here. But know that Jesus himself is the king of glory. That Jesus himself is the primary focus. So here we've seen that um, there were many lessons that the disciples had to learn, or, or that did learn through the transfiguration. There's also many lessons for us to learn from what we've studied together tonight as well that I want to share with you now. So just as Jesus led Peter, James, and John to the private place up on top of this mountain so, they could, so that they could experience greater depths of intimacy with him and knowledge of him, Jesus Christ is calling every single one of us today to the private place as well, to go and to get away with him, not just once, not just here and there, but daily, going and getting away with Jesus Christ personally away from the distractions of this world, away from the pressures of this world, away from the busyness of life, away from all the seemingly urgent things that are always right in front of our faces, away from the idols of the world, and to the most important things, and especially to the most important thing, which is sustained personal intimacy with Jesus Christ. Because he's coming, he's opening up this way, and if you, don't, if you don't go and spend personal time with him, you're just trampling on what he bought for you. Saying, Jesus, I want to get to heaven, but knowing you, I don't really care about that. Can you imagine 
if you just gave something to someone and, and, and they take it, like, forget you. I just, have, I just have this thing. Brothers and sisters, eternal life has already started. And Jesus even defines it in John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Yes, there is going to be eternal paradise. But the greatest thing is just knowing God. And you have been given an invitation. This isn't an obligation. This isn't a pressure thing. This is an invitation. That Lord of glory, with all this brilliance, all this purity, all this awesomeness, he's saying, hey, every single one of you, come. Come spend time with me. Come know me. Come adore me. And how do you do this? How do you get away with Jesus to the private place? How do you cultivate deeper intimacy with, with him? First, you've got to make time for it. That's number one. Clear out your life. Over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that Bryson mentioned earlier, did you notice that he was talking about in the passage, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and deceive ourselves. You, know, you can claim whatever you want. You can claim that Jesus is your treasure. You can claim that Jesus is your Lord. But what's your life say? Honestly, what's your life say? Because guess what? I don't care what you say. I want to see it. And God does too. What you truly believe is not what you say. What you truly believe is what comes out in your life. Do you want Jesus? Or do you just want to be saved? Jesus is looking for relationship, not just fireproof insurance. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to feel. I don't want you make. Want, I do not want you to make, uh, feel shameful. Prom, I promise you. I just want to give you the truth and the full truth, okay? And if you're in this place, well, that's convicting to you, where you feel like it's not about Jesus, it's about something else. We're gonna have a prayer team after this, and I want you to go to them, and I just want you to say, "Hey, I want Jesus," and they would love to encourage you hold you, love you, pray with you. Jesus wants you. He wants you so much. And when you go and you make time for that, fill it. This is exciting. Fill it with the word of God. It's such a cool thing. Fill that, fill that space with the word of God where God has revealed himself to you. And just go to just bask in and adore the heart of God that you see there. When you go, this is a two-way dialogue, right? God speaks to you, you speak to him. God speaks to you, you speak to him. And it is so fun. Honestly, reading my Bible is the, like my favorite hobby. I love it. I love talking to God. It's so fun. It's so fun. I promise you. If you want help, come talk to me. If you want help, go talk to a mentor, okay? And when you go and you pray to God, talk to him as your friend. Don't feel like you have to have this elaborate, sophisticated prayer. Just be like, Dad, Dad, I love you. Thank you. You're awesome. Thank you. And I want you to be honest if, there's, if there are idols in your life as well. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've, I've had this at times, where my heart's been other places. Kind of like a, a, a Holcrux. Do you have any Harry Potter, Harry Potter fans? Yeah? 
Well, in one of the movies, the guy named like Lord Voldemort, uh, he gets wrecked, which is cool. But, um, but one thing he does, he takes his heart and he splits it up into like seven or eight different, different places. So his heart's just all over the place. And he's just a terrible, cold man. And I believe that like when I, when I look at that, I'm like, man, I think a lot of Christians have set up these whole crux things. Because their heart's here, their heart's here, their heart's here, their heart's here, their heart's here. When, when, man, just bring your full heart to Christ. Just bring your full heart to Christ. And don't just rely on the testimonies of other people who have gone, gone on the top of the mountain. Through Jesus Christ, the way is open for you. And brothers and sisters, at first, it might be hard. You might have to figuratively climb a, climb a mountain. But in our culture, like we've equated, oh, something's hard, well, it's not worth it. That's not true. Even if it's tough sometimes, it is worth it. Even if you're not a reader, I don't care. Okay? Go and spend time with the Father. So they're not just words on a page like another book. This word, the Bible, is alive and active. And if you want help, come to us. We want to help you. We love you. Nothing is more important or exciting or life-giving than personal intimacy with Jesus Christ. Number two, it's very connected to what I just shared. Don't put anything on the same level of importance or value as Jesus Christ in the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We see that the apostle Peter, he put Christ, Moses, and Elijah all on the same line, and God came and he corrected him. And Peter certainly learned from God's correction of him, because Peter would actually go on to give his life up for the gospel, for Jesus Christ. And so much so, tradition says it, that they were going to crucify Peter uh, right side up, just like they did Jesus. But he valued Jesus, he revered Jesus, he loved Jesus so much, he said, no, 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 flip this sucker upside down. I don't feel worthy to die in the same way as my Savior. Flip this sucker upside down. You know, they're like, it's kind of sick and twisted, but I, okay, whatever. But he did. He learned, man, there's nothing more valuable than Jesus. And he died for it. And Jesus is worthy. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, we have Jesus recorded sharing the parable of the hidden treasure. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And Jesus Christ is this treasure that wants to be sought after and wants to be found. And did you hear in that that Jesus Christ, or, or this, this man with this treasure, that in his joy, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. So what's that tell us? It says that everything else put together is still not as good, not as worthy, not as beautiful as Jesus Christ. And that is the truth. And true life, overflowing life and eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ. So why go to any other cistern? Why go to any other well when the well of living water is calling you to himself tonight? Third, Jesus always knows what he's doing. He always knows what's going on, and he is always in control. Even while Jesus was being verbally insulted, beaten relentlessly, and crucified on the cross, he knew what he was doing the entire time, and he was in control the entire time. Peter couldn't see how that would be good. 
But once he saw the glory of Christ, he knew Jesus knew what he was doing. And did Peter struggle with this at times? Absolutely. And at times, you will struggle, and that's okay. Keep fighting, keep looking back to Jesus, and keep this, um, finding yourself in him. And the fourth and final lesson that I want to share with you this evening is this. Sometime later, after Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus did end up going to Jerusalem. And he was rejected. He was beaten relentlessly. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was ultimately crucified and died on a Friday afternoon. Jesus Christ did not deserve a single one of these things. This is who he was. The entire time, this is who he was. The Lord of glory. But he put it away for you. This was him taking the punishment and wrath of our sin upon himself. The punishment and wrath that we rightly and justly deserve, he put it on himself because he loves us. He became obedient all the way into death. But just as he said he would, just as he said he would, Jesus miraculously rose from the dead the following Sunday morning. And guess what? This was back. He rose and he said, guess what? All the weakness, all the sufferings, all the death, it's gone. No more. No more. See, brothers and sisters, he took your death. He took your sin. He took your separation from God. And I like to think about this figuratively, that when he rose out of that grave, when he walked out of that tomb, that he sealed it shut again. And he says, if you believe in me, it's sealed shut. And it's never going to find you again. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of freedom that Jesus gave you. Any sin you've committed, any shortcoming you, you have, if your faith is in Jesus, it is sealed in that tomb, and it will never find you again. Jesus came and he conquered death, and if your faith is in him, at the end of your life, Jesus will immediately immediately, once you breathe your final breath, bring you in to conscious awareness, conscious fellowship with him in the kingdom of heaven. And that there will be an eternal paradise there for you that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And brothers and sisters, someday, in accordance with the will and the wisdom of God the Father, because Jesus is alive in victory right now, because he rose and he ascended, one of the other most pivotal things that the transfiguration shows us, it gives us a sample of who Jesus Christ is going to be for all eternity. Because, brothers and sisters, when that sky opens, when those trumpets sound, and Jesus comes riding in, guess who he's going to be? Guess what he's going to look like? His face is going to be shining with the sun, like all of its brilliance. His clothes are going to be as bright as a flash of lightning. You know, he's going to be coming with all these angels. And be like, that's my Savior. That's my King. What's up? Right? But brothers and sisters, have so much hope. Have so much security in that. And know that Jesus is no longer a humble human baby. He's not suffering on a cross. He is what he looks like in the transfiguration right now and for all eternity. And guess what? At the end of your life too, he's going to bring us up and we, we don't know what we're going to be, but we're going to be closer to that. We're going to have this glory shining off of us. We're going to be this different being because we'll be free from these bodies of flesh. 
And that is so exciting. And brothers and sisters, as you go out there, as you live for Christ, as you share Christ, have confidence that that is who Christ is. He's not some weak guy. He is the king of glory. He is the Lord God Almighty himself. And just as the Apostle John wrote, again, he was there at the transfiguration as well. This is 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We are going to see him face to face as he looked at the transfiguration, and we are going to praise him for all eternity. We are going to be part of those thousands of angels, thousands of spirits made perfect, roaring his praises in heaven just being in fellowship with him, and what a glorious day that will be, beholding him in his full, radiant uh, glory. And brothers and sisters, my challenge for you, go. Go up the mountain. Get into the word. Get into the quiet place. Get into the secret place with Jesus and let him show you who he is because he wants to. He wants to. All you have to say is yes. And brothers and sisters, someday, put your hope in this. Put your living hope in this. That that day, that we will be face to face with Christ. We will all be declaring this from 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be saying, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God that he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. Jesus, in in John chapter 11, Jesus, you say that you are the resurrection and the life. You say that anyone who believes in you will live even though they die. Jesus, that is true. That Jesus, we will live even though we may die. Jesus, because you conquered death. Jesus, because you, as the Lord of glory, took on humble human flesh And you came and you you made your dwelling among us so that you could make your dwelling within us and that we could make our dwelling with you in the kingdom of heaven someday. And Jesus, you said on the cross, it is finished. And Jesus, when we put our faith in you, it is finished, it is accomplished. So Jesus, I pray over all the hearts, all the souls here, Lord, if they felt convicted about any of this, Jesus, about pursuing you, knowing you, being with you, that Jesus, they would go, they would find a mentor, they would find a member of the prayer team, they would find someone, Lord, Jesus, you would just lead them. Lead them in whatever they need. And Jesus, I pray that you would bless this time that we have remaining, just to honor you, to praise you, to glorify you as the King of kings and the Lord of glory. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.